Michael Oshlink here, back with former Captain Dan Grazier. He is the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow at Strauss Military Reform Project. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well, Michael. How about yourself? Uh, well, it's uh, good to see you again. Yes, yes. We seem to do this about once a year or so. It, it has been a year. We uh, came together last year, uh, actually a few times. One of them was to talk about the F-35. Right. It's uh, October 2018. It's back on the news uh, for two reasons. One, it ran bombing missions in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, there was a crash recently um, here in South Carolina. Right. Thank God the pilot survived. But it uh, gave us the opportunity to come back and kind of discuss where we are at with the F-35. Obviously, there's three versions of it. So it's almost three different conversations we must have. Um, so tell us, uh, where are we at with the F-35, Dan? Well, so right now mm -hmm. the, the program is on the cusp of uh, entering into the, the initial operational test evaluation phase. And so that's a, it's a big critical step that has to happen before the program can legally enter into full rate production. And uh, now we're acquiring about 77 of these a year, which is uh, a little more than half of the anticipated full rate production buy. So the, uh, the, the, the term full rate production is a little, is a little nebulous. So, cause I would, I would argue that the 77 aircraft that we're, that we're buying a year, uh, goes beyond the statutory definition of, uh, test articles and, uh, production, uh, efficiencies. Like that's the idea of low rate initial production is to create an appropriate number of test articles mm -hmm. and to kind of refine some of their production uh, processes. Uh, I think we've gone somewhat beyond that since <laughs> yes. we have several hundred F-35s now, but uh, that's neither here nor there. But the, the initial operation test evaluation uh, issue is, is uh, it's, it's very important. This is a, it's a, it's an important step just because this is the, the point where the program Essentially, gets gets handed over from the developers who are, uh, you know, design, correct, fix phase to go into the operational testers, the actual kind of warfighter testers who are going to put this thing through its paces. They're supposed to be independent from the developers. They're supposed to uh, really put the any system through its paces from an operational perspective. They're looking to see if the system is capable of performing its mission, mm -hmm. uh, but also, and this is another really crucial thing and, and an issue that a lot of people kind of miss, that it's, it's important also to see if it's operationally suitable. So not just mission capable, but also uh, operationally suitable, which is can the actual maintainers, the, the, the privates and the, and the lance corporals, uh, the guys who turn the wrenches on it, can they actually maintain this thing in the field in an operational condition? Uh, can it be loaded properly uh, as far as weapons go? Uh, can the the software, in, in the case of the F-35, can, can the ALICE system, can it actually do what it's supposed to do in order to keep the aircraft up and running? Not just can it launch, can it find a target, can it launch ordnance uh, and actually hit a target, but also on the back end of it, can the program go through all the necessary steps in order to, uh, to, to, to get to that point? So <clears throat> we acknowledged at the beginning of this conversation that there are three versions of it. Can you talk a little about each of the versions and some of the, uh, s some of the stumbles along the way to, this, to where we're at today that at least some of them have gone through, some of the challenges that they face, 
And where are they at with fixing some of those challenges, including some of the things that I think you and I spoke about last time is uh, some of the challenges with environmental conditions. Right. Well, I, we haven't heard too much... Uh, we haven't heard too many updates about the environmental things, because uh, and those are those are some of the issues that definitely garner a lot of attention when you you talk about the the F thirty F thirty five Lightning two, uh, but yet it can't operate in proximity to lightning. That's uh, that's one of those issues that just seems comical and grabs people's attention. I mean, there's some there's some legitimate concerns about that. I mean, we don't just uh, fight wars in in clear. And clear weather, mm-hmm. and in particular, uh, in with my background as as a tank officer in the Marine Corps, somebody who fights on the ground, uh, and somebody who planned a lot for big combined arms operations to include close air support. Uh, look, I know that just because it's raining outside doesn't mean that I go home or or the fighting stops. Like that's actually <clears throat> the really dangerous point uh, because. Our, our adversaries know how dependent we are on on our indirect fires and particularly on, on aircraft and close air support. So the most opportune time for an enemy who has to fight the United States, the, the heavily mechanized, mechanized United States ground forces, the best time to attack us is when the weather isn't bad. Right. So this is why it's really important that if we're going to have an aircraft in particular that's supposed to... To, to provide that close air support, that it can actually provide that close air support in in adverse weather conditions. Mm-hmm. So if it can't, then that's a huge shortfall, Problem. and that, that actually right. speaks to that operational operational suitability that uh, that I just talked about. Uh, so besides uh, some of the environmental challenges in terms of weather, which they still have to work through, uh, there are also problems. Hypoxia, I believe, is one of the other problems internal to the. Uh, uh, F-35 for the pilots. Mm-hmm. Has that been fixed? Uh, as far as I know, it has not. Uh, and I guess it's important to point out that that's not unique to the F-35. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other programs that have the, the OBOG systems on it, the, the onboard oxygen generating system seems to be having problems with that. So that's I know that's an issue that it's not the, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps, they're all kind of looking into this. And I think they even pulled NASA in to try to figure mm-hmm. out uh, the the issue with this trying to trying to identify the fix, uh, I don't know how that one's going to play out. I know that this isn't hasn't necessarily been an issue with some of the older aircraft that don't generate their own oxygen on board. They're, they have liquid oxygen tanks that get filled up when the when the aircraft lands. They're that's a simple system and it works. Generally, I always almost always advocate for the, the simplest possible solution to the problem that you're Kiss. trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You want to keep these things as absolutely simple as you, as you possibly can and still meet the mission. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still not, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if the, the liquid oxygen is the way to go because there's some limiting factors mm-hmm. to that. For example, if you're flying uh, across the ocean, you can, you can, uh, you could top off the tanks by hitting the tanker uh, as far as fuel goes, but you can't do the same thing with the liquid oxygen. So, so that becomes a bit of an issue. That's why you want to have a reliable onboard oxygen generating system. So it's a little more complicated. It's one of those things that they definitely have to fix, uh, and I'm still waiting like everyone else to, to hear the final solution of that one. Right. What are the, some of the other challenges um, that the F-35 has run across that it Taxpayers should be aware of and be concerned now that it's getting closer to full "quote unquote" its production. Yeah, uh, so I would say that one of the uh, 
the, the higher end missions uh, are are some of the bigger ones, and they've had a lot of problems with those. And you can see that through the testing reports uh, that the the F-35 program has been able to meet some of the lower end missions. And we you referenced the, the the first combat strike that American F-35 uh, did. You know, they were Marine Corps F-35Bs uh, uh, that flew a combat mission over Afghanistan. From the reports that that we have about it, they were uh, it was a uh, it was a pair of F-35s uh, flying over Afghanistan. They bombed a static target. I think it had something to do with narcotics production. Um, they they flew it from several thousand feet um, and dropped a bomb on a sta- on a static target. That's a mission that has performed thousands of times since we went to war in 2001 by all kinds of legacy aircraft. There was absolutely nothing new about that. When I was in Afghanistan, I saw A-10s do it. I saw C-130 fire Hellfire missiles do the same thing. Uh, It's something that... You don't need a fifth-generation aircraft. Right. You don't need an F-35 that costs $150 million uh, to, uh, to, to perform that mission. And that's not what these things were, were were designed for. That's not why we've spent this much money to develop this program. Um, but these are the kind of wars that we're most likely to fight. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit. So it, it's, it's not a good use of taxpayers' money to spend that kind of money on an aircraft doing bombing runs on static targets when you have other legacy aircraft that can do the same. We've talked, I think, last time about close air support. That mm-hmm. the F-35 is completely the wrong aircraft to do that because it's unable to do like what an A-10 can do sure. in close air support. How about aircraft to aircraft? There wasn't there a recent test of this last year, uh, fighting an F-35 was an F against F-16 or that was uh, <clears throat> yeah that was back in 2015. Oh, well, a couple uh, years when ago. That, happen. Oh, that was a, okay. that was a couple years ago, uh, and that one. Uh, it, uh, I guarantee you, anyone who uh, uh, any of the the F thirty five advocates that are listening to this uh, makes their blood boil when you even reference that uh, that test because time flies. Wow. It does. It goes by. It goes by quick. Uh, that one, it's uh, that was that was an interesting test and it was an interesting glimpse into uh, into the program and into the the minds of the testers really because that was a report that was written by. An F-35 test pilot, and the the, in, the the most important thing that you can pull out of that is that the F-35 has a because uh, the pilot wrote that the F-35 is a distinct energy maneuverability deficiency when compared to the F-16, and and so what that basically means, it, 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 without going into all of the detail about EM, and I'm definitely not an EM expert on that. By, by any stretch of the imagination, but I know the I know the basics of it. It's the it's the base, basic formula on how you can um, how you can determine aircraft performance in the in the air, particularly with with fighter aircraft. And you can you can run all the calculations. You can chart out the the performance through the the entire envelope uh, of an aircraft. You can compare them. You can overlay uh, an EM chart of an F thirty five over an EM chart for for an F sixteen. You can see where each aircraft has uh, has an advantage, has an efficiency, mm-hmm. and so it's the basic math. It's it's what's baked into the program. And so when uh, it's not necessarily just the um, the the fact that in that particular test that that particular pilot in the F thirty five and that particular pilot in the F sixteen 
um, happen to maybe they were mismatched. Maybe you have a really really mm -hmm. experienced F sixteen pilot uh, and a and a relatively inexperienced F thirty five pilot. The F sixteen pilot's obviously going to have an advantage just because he has better experience. You can flip those two guys with the experience level, and the F thirty five pilot might be able to um, mm -hmm. might be able to absolutely smoke the F sixteen you know less experienced F sixteen pilot. Pilot skill is very important. But what the key takeaway from that was the fact that the aircraft itself has a baked-in disadvantage when compared to the F-16. So um, I have to imagine that uh, F-35 and any fifth-generation aircraft are being created, designed, created, and put out there not to fight some third-world country, but, you know, a major nation-state like the Russians or the Chinese um, what do we know about their capability? Have there ever, I know obviously there haven't been tests done against their similar based aircraft, but I have to imagine that wargaming, that we've, we've gamed these things out. What do we know about their capabilities versus ours in that kind of dogfight? Anything? Well, it's, <clears throat> that one's difficult to say. I've seen the results of some simulations. Mm -hmm. Um, that show the F thirty five is a distinct disadvantage to uh, like the Sukhois and some of the other some of the threat aircraft. Now, those are simulations. Mm -hmm. You can program a simulation to crank out whatever right, right. whatever result you want. Which is why I don't like the idea of us simulating tests uh, for any of our systems. Really, like let's build this thing. Let's build a, a good production representative prototype. Let's put it in the hand of warfighters. Let's let them, uh, you know, if it's a plane, fly it, tank, drive it, whatever, uh, and see how this thing actually really works. Um, you can't simulate a lot of these things. Same thing when we're talking about the Ford aircraft carrier. You can't simulate a shock trial. You actually have to set off explosives and see how all these systems interact with each other. Uh, so, and, and I'm not aware of any... Um, F-35 versus an SU-35 uh, a flanker flying against each other. Not to say that it doesn't happen, because mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. that in the past uh, we have uh, uh, acquired, captured uh, enemy aircraft, and, uh, and they fly them out west. So maybe that is happening, and I just don't know about it. Uh, but if you, if you look at the real numbers, it's, it's an interesting thing to, thing to see. The are our potential adversaries, our potential peer adversaries, they show pictures of, of a lot of these systems. But if you really look at the numbers, they're not building all that many of them. Mm -hmm. So, but yet, we have plans on building 2,443 F-35s. So, it kind of makes, <laughs> makes you wonder. It, I guess who? <laughs> right. Well, it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, what are they really, like, how do they view future war? Like, if, if, they're, like, if they're really preparing to fight against the United States... They're obviously not planning on flying swarms and swarms of, of aircraft at us because they're not building swarms and swarms of aircraft. What are they doing? Well, they're building a very heavily integrated air defense network to go against us. Like, they're basically, they show these pictures of these fancy aircraft, and, and it kind of makes decision makers here in the United States go, oh my God, look at these fancy aircraft. So we have to buy fancy aircraft. And so we do. And we invest a whole lot of money uh, buying. Uh, it's almost like they're baiting us to buy a lot of really fancy, expensive aircraft when really what they're doing is they're designing a, uh, a very dense, networked, integrated air defense uh, system uh, designed specifically to go after what they're baiting us to build. So, if I remember correctly, uh, people were making fun of the president for thinking that the F-35 could be invisible. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 
being designed with some capabilities, hopefully sure. to protect it, protect itself against the Russian ground sensors uh, or other sensors that the Russians might have, aircraft or ground or ship. Mm-hmm. What do we know about the capability of our aircraft to protect itself against those kind of sensors? Well. So stealth technology is nothing new. It's something that we've been working on for 40, 50 years almost now uh, about how to, like radar stealth is basically what they're, what they're designing these things for. Uh, and it, it seemed like it was a great idea back when, when they were coming up with it back in the 60s, mm-hmm. basically. And and I guess it seemed still seemed like kind of a good idea in the late '80s, early '90s when the F thirty five was really kind of born. When the idea for the F thirty five was really <clears> born, but I mean, here we are. It's it's we're almost at the end of two thousand eighteen now, and we've we've put up stealth aircraft against a, a couple of different enemies now. And so our like every time you build a you build a high tech weapon somebody's going to try to to come up with a way to counter it. Mm-hmm. And and more often than not, and this is, again, one of the reasons why I always advocate simplicity in weapon systems, uh, in almost every instance, when you come up with a really high-tech solution for a problem, someone's going to come with a very low-tech and relatively inexpensive counter to that. And so, which is why you want to go for the simple option almost every time, because it, it becomes a whole lot harder to do that. Plus, when you build a really expensive really complicated weapon system you usually have it geared towards like one kind of really specific target set like scenario and so we kind of build ourselves into this really narrow uh, uh, corridor for operations where we have this high-tech thing we have with this whole high-tech military and we're geared towards this one like we're optimized for this one really narrow uh, um, scenario and it happens to be all the way at the um, at the at the one end of the spectrum, like the the, the most extreme end of the warfighting spectrum. When in reality, like most wars aren't over here. Most wars are are in the in the lower uh, ranges. So then all so then you have this this mismatch between the military that you've designed and you've invested heavily to build, but then your operations are are on a much lower end of the uh, on the much lower end of that spectrum, and so you have this big mismatch, and that becomes a big problem. In the yeah, we might have a we might have a bit of a warfighting advantage in the in the physical dimension, but even that is is very nebulous too. Uh, but that's only that's the lowest dimension of warfare. We still have the mental and moral dimensions above that, and when we're when you take something like the F-35 and you fight and you're, and you're fighting guys in tracksuits with AK-47s, all of a sudden, you're Goliath fighting David. Mm-hmm. And in the 2,500 years that people have been telling the story of David and Goliath, how many times have people cheered for Goliath? Like, right. it doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we do, we, we have this, we've kind of built ourselves into, into this, uh, into this really tiny frame of, of operations and and so we've created massive opportunities for potential adversaries and I'm not talking about the high end potential adver- adversaries that we have a very low probability of fighting uh, it's like the the calculus the battle calculus of trying to fight a nuclear armed enemy 
uh, in a conventional fashion is extremely limited. And some people say it's actually impossible, uh, and I tend to agree with them. Uh, so, like, we're not, you know, God forbid we actually have to fight that war, uh, the, the war that the F-35 was intended for. Uh, because that war's probably going to be over in 30 minutes. and uh, But we have a very high probability of fighting much lower-end uh, mm-hmm. conflicts, and and we just have a mismatch. And if we do have to, f- to put the F-35 up against something like that, uh, the, the low-end uh, enemy that we might end up, uh, the low-tech enemy that we're going to end up fighting, they have a distinct advantage over that, because it, it's... If they're flying at 2,500, uh, you know, 25,000 feet, uh, it becomes kind of easy to hide from that, um, and there's all kinds of complications with it because it's a persistent long fight. The F-35 is very short legs, uh, so um, like coin warfare is long, arduous, and uh, and and really. Uh, unsuccessful. It's, <laughs> unsuccessful. Speaking. It's frustrating. <laughs> uh, Except for a couple of examples. And, and a lot of times when you're when you're dropping very expensive munitions on them, you lose on the moral dimension instantaneously. Yeah, yeah. And so using the F-35 or any weapon system like that uh, in that kind of conflict makes you lose almost instantaneously. So if I remember correctly, uh, taxpayers of common sense put the price tag over a trillion dollars when yep. all said and done. Doesn't sound like a I think most of the, a, a lot of the uh, estimates for the F thirty five program over the life of the program up through like twenty sixty is actually one point five trillion dollars. Oh, one point five trillion. Okay. Yes, it's even worse. Okay, with one point five trillion dollars mm-hmm. spent, and doesn't sound like it's spent well. Doesn't sound like the aircraft is really well equipped to deal with the different environments that we just discussed um, and the different um, areas it might fight in, whether it's bombing air, aircraft, aircraft or cats or whatever. Um, is there anything good that you could look at the program? Because maybe we want to end this on a positive note. That sure. You say, okay, we, we've effed this up for the taxpayers. We've effed this up for the warfighters. But at least we've gotten to know X, Y, and Z from this whole process. So next time we'll do something differently. Well, and, and I hope people are taking, taking lessons. One of the reasons that I do the work that I do, uh, and <clears throat> I am very critical of the F-35 program, not just the F-35 program, but pretty much every big, complicated, uh, overly engineered weapons program, I will, I will complain and I will argue against. Uh, and, and that's because that's not the right way to go. You want to keep things as simple as you possibly can. Uh, with aircraft specifically, and with the F-35 in particular, uh, you, we've seen this play out before. Uh, where a multi-service, <coughs> multi-role aircraft program always ends up being way more expensive than it was to begin with, and it always it, it always underperforms based on uh, the the goals that were set for it at the at the out at the outset. It's just the it's just the nature of engineering. It's just the it's just the nature of uh, of the way these things work. Where the the design compromises that you have to make. In an aircraft, in order for it to meet all these different missions, means that you have to shave off the performance on on one mission to try to uh, try okay. to boost its performance in another mission. And so, again, it's it's a cliche, but it's very true. The the jack of all trades, master master of none. So that's an important lesson. Like, look, we've done this before. This is exactly what we did with the F one eleven back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Sixties, right? And uh, and that turned out to be a big mistake. It was canceled early, and uh, after a whole lot of money had been sunk into it, and 
but the the bright side of that was when because that did become such a big disaster um, that we actually got really good programs that came from its ashes. So because of that, um, we uh, they they cut that program short. They started the FX program, which became the F fifteen, uh, which is a very successful program. And from that came the the lightweight fighter program, which resulted in the F sixteen, uh, and then uh, and then down the road the F eighteen uh, for the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, and also one that was the A ten. And so, like that's the that's that's my optimism is that the 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 lessons. Uh, of the F-35 are, look, this is a big mistake. We should not have done this. Uh, the fact that this has taken us now, um, it's almost 20 years uh, and and really longer if you think back to the, the real origins of the program. I mean, it goes all the way back to uh, the early 90s when I was a freshman in high school. I'm 40 years old now. And so, like, this has been going on for a very, very long time. And, it, like, if we cannot... If we cannot field a, a fully developed aircraft program in a quarter century, then we are really behind the power curve. Because if you go back and you look at, uh, you go back, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a military historian, and so you go back and I've studied uh, World War II quite a bit. I've studied a lot of aircraft programs from, from back then. And if you if you look at the turnaround on a lot of those, I mean, you in some of them they were it was it was mere months. And now critics are going to say, oh well, you know that was that was different, and and you know aircraft were a whole lot simpler back then. I, I say no, they weren't. They do the exact they, they serve they they serve the exact same function today that they did then. Like an aircraft, it takes off, it flies around, it finds a target, and it fires ordnance. It, like functionally, it doesn't do anything differently than they did back in World War II. Now they do. Uh, now they, they they fill that basic function differently. We're talking jets instead of propeller driven. In some cases, we have the, the lightweight fighter uh, program now that everyone's talking about. Uh, so that's a bit of Back to the Future kind of a thing. And but uh, like when you when you really look at it, you step back and you look at it. Like functionally, yeah, they yeah, there there's there's no difference. And so there's really no reason why these things should take as long as they as long as they are. So maybe maybe we've worked out some of the kinks in the uh, in in the modern aircraft design with the F thirty five, and maybe it might be a little easier for the for the next one if they want to include some of the things. I would hope that they don't. Like I think that it's a really bad idea to network all the all the aircraft together. Um, you can fill the same functions uh, through voice, and a lot of and a lot of times, like I get the whole um, you know one aircraft actually identifies and. and kind of guides targets while the other guy shoots i get that um but you know if you build simpler aircraft and you put them up in bigger numbers then you can kind of overcome a lot of that stuff um and so like that part of the networking is is uh uh yeah i think it 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 complicates an issue that doesn't need to be complicated as much as as much as they are i really think it's a bad idea to have the something like the alice network where um you have this global uh, you have this global maintenance uh, computer network where you have to plug the plane in and and uh, has to download information that goes all the way back to the manufacturer, not even the government. Um, that's a, another huge problem uh, that we have the contractor that maintains control of that. 
Um, but again, like if you design a simpler aircraft, you don't need all of all that. that stuff. And uh, and so and it becomes a whole lot easier to maintain because uh, that's just it, it's just the, the nature of these things. I saw this with uh, with tanks with the, with an Abrams. The every time you add a new component to these things, that's one more thing that can break. And it's one more thing that, in the case of a tank, it's one more thing that can keep that tank from rolling when you need it to roll. So you want to strip out as much of this stuff as you can from these things uh, because it gives you a much higher probability of that weapon system being ready to go at the moment that you need it. So from what I'm hearing you say is uh, for a lot of systems, we're heading completely in the wrong direction. More yes, complexity. Very much so. More high tech, which uh, increases the likelihood of tons of different types, types of problems. Um, which is unfortunate. Let me ask you a last question, um, drone technology. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Is there like sixth generation? Like where are we at with pilotless, humanless aircraft that might replace human aircraft? Well, I, I know that that's... Uh, not just for surveillance, not just for like, you know, a strike, uh, one missile strike, you know, against a terrorist target, but some right. of these other operations that we um, as, as far as the the generations, I haven't seen anybody assign specific generations to the to the current uh, to the current remotely piloted uh, vehicles. Uh, I I know that there's there's been some discussion about adapting the B twenty one the new bomber program uh, to have a, uh, a pilotless capability uh, or a remote operated capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't heard. I haven't really heard too many people talking about doing the same thing with, uh, like, a fighter or an attack uh, aircraft yet. Uh, with a fighter aircraft, I don't know. I, I guess I'm kind of agnostic on that. I'm really, really skeptical of uh, of one of these, uh, of a remotely piloted uh, vehicle serving in the attack uh, profile, like trying to replace the A-10 for either close air support or battlefield air interdiction, that's a really bad idea. You, I want a pilot up there. I want somebody with eyeballs that's not just looking through a soda straw back in back in Nellis, uh, but somebody with eyeballs that has a big field of view right over top of me. Uh, someone, ideally, because, uh, you know, as, as good as uh, uh, some of our close air support pilots are now, uh, I still think we have we have great room for improvement uh, as far as how we actually how we actually do that. Um, because ideally, I want a pilot up there who uh, well, put myself back in my company commander, uh, my, my company commander shoot. So back when I commanded Bravo Company First Tank Battalion, if I was conducting an operation, I would have or planning for an, for that operation. Like I would have liked having a pilot right next to me while we were going through the planning process. So. Um, so he knows me, uh, okay. he knows my boss, uh, so he knows the scheme maneuver, he knows basically how this is supposed to unfold, and so that when he's up there, he's, he isn't just, because right now the way we do this is they get the air tasking order, so, they, so the, the pilot shows up, he's been given a tasker that morning, and you know, told to show up you know, at, at such and such a grid point with such and such ordinance, uh, ready to talk to this guy. And um, so he has basic very slim knowledge of what of what we're actually accomplishing. But if the pilot was involved in that whole process from the beginning, right, right, right. then he shows up, he knows what we're trying to accomplish, and so, and because he knows that, and because he has this great field of view up above us, like, he can spot opportunities that I don't see from the ground. Mm -hmm. And so, like, he can either make recommendations or uh, because um, we operate with mission, we operate with mission command. Uh, he can take the necessary action when he when he sees those very fleeting battlefield.
field opportunities. But if you have a pilot who's who's flying as good as uh, you know as good as he is, if he doesn't have that perspective or he doesn't have that background knowledge, he's not going to be able to to be as effective in that role as as we would like. And even back so. And that's you really can't accomplish that when when the pilot and I'm doing the finger quotes when the pilot is on the other side of the globe in a little trailer on the desert. Uh, with that said, I won't even ask about AI. <laughs> so we'll say that for another time, so we completely remove humans from the the calculus. Um, you do a lot of writing on uh, various weapon systems, including the F-35. Where can folks learn more about what you do and find your writing? Uh, they can come to our, our, our website, uh, uh, pogo.org slash Strauss, um, and my work also appears in, in places like Task and Purpose and the American Conservative and uh, Wars Boring and uh, the National Interest and, and a couple of other uh, publications. Nice. Thanks, Dan. Thank Good talking you. to you.